0: So, we're going to open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of life, for the invitation to follow you, and for friends along the journey. We ask you to bless this time together, open up our spirits and our hearts, empty them of the anxieties and stress that we carried in with us that we can make space for your spirit. Inspire us with the words of so many saints and the tradition that we share that what we do here will help lead us in our journey to grow closer and closer to you. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I love this, what? Yes, that's a great idea. if you, we're going to go over books. If you have not purchased this Luke for Everyone book, I see lots of them, and I know the bookshop sold out twice, so lots of people have it. Luke for Everyone by N.T. Wright. It's a great book, available pretty much anywhere. Um, N.T. Wright is an English bishop, so he's an Anglican like most of us, and he has a fantastic way of Writing that makes things so accessible. And so, what this companion volume is, is just to help us understand what we're reading in the Bible. So, the primary text we're going to be using is surprisingly enough, the Bible. So, I can't tell you how many. So, for all the Episcopalians in the room, this is a Bible, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people came up to me in the last week or two and they said, So, I don't know where my Bible is. And so what one should I buy? And I said, honestly, just read whatever one you have or buy whatever one you want. Um, And so you're gonna need a Bible. The companion volume, the Luke for Everyone, is really just to help, right? We're not gonna necessarily, we're really not going to be studying this, but what it is is almost like the cliff notes of what's going on in the Bible. And if you've ever read a good translation of the Bible, you know that sometimes it's confusing. Words are not exactly the way we might structure them. Sentences are how we structure them. And you might stop and wonder what you just read. And so that companion volume is going to be very helpful. I have to say before we even continue, we're not gonna be able to stay in this room. So sign up on our sheets, which will be passed around. There will be clipboards. We've got four of them, I think. As we go through this hour, the clipboards will hit you at some point. Sign up, just with your name and email address, and we'll let you know where we might go that isn't this room. It's not terrible, but it's, it's a little tight. And you know, Episcopalians don't like to really sit next to people. You know, you really like the extra seat, but we just can't really do it here, so. So I want to acknowledge, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about an overview, right? We will be looking at Luke this year, the Gospel of Luke. Hopefully you had a bookmark on your seat, and if you didn't, we've got plenty more. These bookmarks give you the dates of our meetings, of our study, and the chapter in Luke that we will be looking at that day. All right, so you'll notice, especially on the back, we've got a few dates off for Halloween, for Thanksgiving, <laughs> for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, and we'll make sure you all know when we come back in January after the Christmas holiday, but this is something that will, you can stick right in your Bible, you'll help to read, and you'll also know just very handy where we're going to be next week, and if you're not here, you'll be able to read along with us and listen to the recordings of the study. I do want to acknowledge that quite a few people have mentioned to me that they wanted to do this study but that they have never done a Bible study before. And so I want to assuage your fears. We are not going to be having an altar call today. We are going to be doing really good work at a high level that I hope will inspire you and help you figure out how to read the Bible best, right? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that many people in this room haven't ever read the entire Bible, right? If you haven't, it's a really great thing to do, and there are lots of opportunities. You can just Google lots of different lists of schedules if you ever wanted to make that, say, a discipline for a year. You know, read the Bible in a year or read the Bible in six months or something like that. It's actually quite fun, and the New Testament's decently easy to read, and so we're going to start with Luke as a way of easing us into a Bible study. Now, I'll admit my Desire. my hope would be that we do this for years. I would love to do this for a long time. And so we'll just get rolling today and we'll just continue to grab books of the Bible as we go with whatever makes sense. So to that end, we're looking at Luke this year with an eye toward looking at Acts next year. And I'll go into why we would do Luke and Acts together in a minute. But before we get into that, I want to give just big, broad overview of why we study the Bible at all, why religion is important, and where we even got the Bible as it is today. Also, I love questions. I know it's a big, it's a big room, lots of people, but if there's something that I say that you really do not understand, you're not the only one in the room. And so grab, grab your hand, you know, get us a question, and it, clarify whatever we're talking about. And I want you to know that I've been teaching Bible studies for many years, and this is my favorite thing, because I love to draw. So we're going to be doing some illustrating over here as well in a few minutes when we get to source criticism. Ooh, source criticism. Um, Do we have any EFM grads in here? Anyone who's done education for ministry, EFM? So the people who are raising their hands, raise them again, people who are raising their hands have done a huge amount of work. It's basically seminary without going to seminary they would be great resources to you as we go through this study. And we opened with prayer. And one of the things I want to invite you all to do, if you're beginning to do a Bible study for the first time, is to also begin a little prayer discipline along the way, right? Praying once a day is good for us. Many of us aren't comfortable saying prayers on our own. So look at this room of people who are all with you doing this study. And so my invitation to you is if you don't pray daily, that what you might do along with this Bible study is say a prayer just for the people in this room each day. Now you might name people by name if you've got some friends in here you came with, but even if you don't just pray for all those people in that room. That's okay. Right? God knows. And I think that prayer discipline is going to be a wonderful companion along the way for this Bible study. Prayer is important. Now, religion is important to us as people, right? Religion tries to communicate very common truths. And if you look across all the great religions of the world, we are trying to understand the way God is working in the world, and Christianity is no different. We are connected to the world, connected to the divine, And as people have received or perceived that connection over time, they've tried to write it down. And when they write it down, they might share it. And when other people read it, if they like it, they might share it with their friends. And over time, those stories get shared more and more and more. And those are the pieces of writing that we have in our Bibles. Our Bibles came together not because one person sat down and wrote the whole thing, obviously, and not because one person decided that a certain set of books were the ones that really should be in the Bible, although that could be disputed. It's really about those books, those stories that people wrote, that became authoritative. They're the ones people really liked. And so I want to talk a bit about the history of the Bible. Now one of the things that I'm going to be, one of the terms I'm going to be using here is BCE and CE. You are familiar with those because you, like me, grew up talking about BC and AD, right? Now, what most scholars use, and we are scholars, (laughs) is before the Common Era and the Common Era. So they they line up with B.C. and A.D. It's just that this is the way that you might see things in footnotes in your Bible. It's also the way you might see things in N.T. Wright's commentary, and so I want to make sure you know that B.C.E. and C.E. align with B.C. and A.D. Before the Common Era, there were books about the history of the Hebrew people that circulated around, and those became authoritative And sometime around the 3rd century BCE, so around the 3rd century before Jesus was born, they gathered all those books together, and they tried to translate those books into a language that people understood. And so if we think about our kind of Western Civ history, the original Old Testament books were written in Hebrew, but not everyone could read Hebrew. And so a group of scholars got together and sought to translate the Hebrew into Greek, because lots of people read Greek. And as the story goes, and we know we love good stories, there were 72 scholars, Jewish scholars, that walked into different rooms with their Hebrew Old Testaments, and they sat down and over months and months translated that Hebrew into Greek, And when they all finished and they came back together, every single one of them translated it exactly the same way. It's a miracle. Okay. We call that the Septuagint. This is important. The Septuagint, because 72, right? 72 people, scholars. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament that most of the early Christians would have read. If we were to play telephone and start from one end of an aisle to the other, we all know whatever we end with is not going to be the same that we began with, right? And in that same vein, if you go from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English something's going to be lost. That Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English is how we get the King James Version of the Bible. So the King James Version, which was for a long time the authoritative English version, has, you may notice, not been the version that we read in church for a long time. Unless, of course, it's a funeral and then Psalm 23 is King James, because it just is. What we read is the New Revised Standard Version. That is the version of the Bible I would recommend that you get. N-R-S-V. New Revised Standard Version. It's what you hear in church. It is what you would use in school. And it will be the most accurate translation of the Bible not because they're smarter but because they went to the original language. So it is an English translation from the Hebrew Old Testament. And now we can extrapolate that idea into the New Testament as well. The New Testament was written in Greek and Aramaic. Mostly Greek. When... The NRSV translators created the English version, the NRSV, they translated directly from the Greek or directly from the Aramaic. And so it is most accurate. However, it is often a little clunky because sometimes the writers were not great at language. One of the things that we will see in Luke is that the language is beautiful. Luke is the storyteller. Of the four Gospels that are in the Bible, if you were to recall parables right now, if I were to say to you, what's your favorite parable? It is very certain that your favorite parable would come from Luke. Luke is the parable writer. He is the storyteller. He's got beautiful images and wonderful prose because his Greek was really good. You might know that Luke is believed to be a doctor, a physician of some kind, we have no idea if that's true. What that, where that comes from is because the Greek in Luke is some of the finest Greek, period, not just in the Bible, but it has that beauty like Shakespeare in English. It is well-constructed and it flows and it's, it's fantastic. And so Luke had to have been a very well-educated person versus something like Mark where it's just choppy and, and sad, you know, poor Mark. <laughs> okay. The Septuagint is translated into Greek. The Vulgate Vulgate is the translation into Latin. So these are just little nuggets for you so you can win Jeopardy. <laughs> Septuagint is Greek. And the Vulgate is Latin. And it is from those two translations that we get a lot of the older English versions of the Bible. Now, I want to take a second and talk about the difference between a translation and a paraphrase. The reason I carted all of these books down here was not to impress you, it was to show you that there are lots of different ways that you can read the Bible. And I want you to be familiar with them because they're all helpful so long as you don't do them on their own. So, how many of you are familiar with the message? Yes? The message was written by a biblical scholar, Eugene Peterson. Very well done. It is a paraphrase. And by paraphrase, I mean Eugene would read it in the original language. I mean, he's a legitimate scholar. And then he would say, what are they really saying? And then he would say it in the, sa- the same way we might say it to one another. That is not a translation. However, it is a really helpful way of understanding what the story is trying to get at. And so often what I would recommend people do is find a good paraphrase because it is plain. It is not obtuse. It is not weird or too poetic. It's plain speak. Start there. Then once you know what's going on, jump into a translation that might be a little bit more dense. But it won't be as dense as it was before because you have an idea of what's going on. A parallel is a Bible that is printed next to another. So this is an example of a message and a translation, a paraphrase and a translation, side by side. These are super helpful. I still use these. You can read the paraphrase and see immediately next to it, verse by verse by verse, what the translation is. And this is called a parallel. Parallels are very helpful. There are some that are just straight up the Bible, you know, two different versions, paraphrase, translations. There are others, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, that can compare books of the Bible, like a gospel parallel you can see what stories happen in different Gospels that are similar but different and how they are different when you line them up side by side. We'll talk more about this in a second. Lastly, I may reference something called an interlinear. Interlinear. That is not a translation. What it is is an exact word for word. A translation implies phrasing, right? This is more of a word-for-word translation, not a phrasing translation. And so there are some books, like this one, it's difficult to see, but what they do is they've got the Greek, and immediately below each Greek word, the English word that corresponds with it. If you ever wanted to get... I, I know, it's a little intense. Sorry. I know. I know. Calm down. Calm down. And it gets even better than that. So this book is one of my favorites, and I'll, show, I'll tell you why, because we've been talking about it. So it's an interlinear of Greek and English with a side-by-side parallel of the NRSV and the NIV. Now, the NIV is a great option for you. Here are the three that I want you to know. I need another color. If you really want to get some Bibles to help you, and some of you already have all these, The NRSV, the NIV, and the Message are the three I would recommend. The NIV is the new international version that is probably, most likely, the ones that you have used in Bible studies, if you've been in Bible studies in the past, and your friends who are in, say, Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian traditions are probably going to be reading the NIV. It is meant to be a softer translation of the NRSV. It is still a good translation. Don't let snobs tell you it's not. It is still a good translation. It's just not quite as accurate as the NRSV, but, I mean, you know, unless you're going for a degree, it really doesn't matter. So if you've got an NIV, use it. You don't need to go buy a new one. But if you don't have either, this is the one that we read in church the NRSV, and so you might want to lean toward that one. The message is a great one for you to potentially buy. That being said, you can get all of these online, right? You, if you go to, are you familiar with Bible Gateway? Yeah. Okay. Those of you who aren't, there's a great website, Bible Gateway, where you can plug in a verse or chapter or whatever, And it will drop all of those in all the different kind of translations. Now, what's really hilarious that I love about Bible Gateway, because it is a well-intentioned, you know, straight-up evangelical uh, effort, they don't have this version. (laughs) There is a... There is sort of this feeling out there that the NRSV was done um, too academically without as much faithfulness, you know, that it was just academics. They weren't, say... Christians, although, yes, they were, but they were also Jews, too, which, oh, God forbid. Um, but they, so there are some places where the NRSV, they just, like, suck it out like it doesn't exist. Um, so Bible Gateway's great for lots of different versions, but you won't find the NRSV there. Um, one of those funny things. So, any questions up to this point? And if I have skipped over t- something and you don't know what I'm talking about, let me know. as a translation, the way as a translation. I'm not familiar with it. Um, sorry. I mean, there, oh my gosh, there are dozens and dozens of translations. These are really the two that I think straddle being really accurate and also readable. In the message, Eugene Peterson, he is as good a scholar as anyone, and so although his is a paraphrase and should not be used in a in sort of an intellectual argument you know you don't want the message to be the thing you quote to prove a point necessarily it's still really good and something that can be super helpful to you to understand what's going on in the meat of it i think i saw thought oh sure okay well so there are multiple other good ones let's see the NAB is one, the New American Bible, the ESV is one, the English Standard version. those are probably the two other real popular ones. Um, all good. I mean, I, most people would lean toward the NIV. If you weren't going to read the NRSV, I would sort of argue that the NIV is the next best. These are fine. There is nothing wrong with them. They, most translations were done for a particular denomination. So, you know, Catholics will typically read the NAB, and Presbyterians often like the ESV. It, it's, I don't know, it, it's not a big deal, it is not a big deal. Um, I just, this is more so you know than so that you can direct it, Re- bring the Bible you have. And the other thing I want to make sure you know is that the Bible is not going to, like, light you on fire. Um, LAUGHTER you know, one of, the things that, one of the things that I often do in a Bible study when we begin is this. Oh, We are all alive. It is okay. I want you to use it, okay? If your Bible isn't falling apart after a year or two, you're not using it enough, all right? The, the side should be coming off and the pages should be all tattered and right all over it. You know, nothing's going to happen to you. In fact... What will happen to you if you do that is you'll really understand it, which is a great thing. One of the things I'd like to say, and why I think Bible studies are so important, is that as Episcopalians, and I'm, we are probably not all Episcopalians in this room, which is a great thing, but as an Episcopalian, I want to encourage you not to read the Bible literally, but to read it literally. We have to be literate about the Bible if we are going to decide how to live. Otherwise, we're victims of what someone else says that we should do because the Bible says so. Here's a little secret. With very few exceptions, the Bible never says so once and for all. You can pull up anything that the Bible says, I will find you another place in the Bible that it contradicts it, right? That is just how it works. It's okay, it's human and it means they're struggling, and they're trying to make sense of what God's doing in the world, that is fine. But it means it can't be literal. And if you need it to be literal, what you're really doing is you're starting a failing process. Because, here's my, here's my favorite example of that. How many Gospels are there in the Bible? Four. How long was Jesus' ministry? According to John. We all think Jesus' ministry was three years, right? If you read Mark, Matthew, or Luke, nothing about it says three years. One year. Who cares? That doesn't matter, right? Jesus did what he did. One year, three years, they're stories. And that's okay. That alone, I hope, proves that you can't be literal when you read the Bible. But for people who are not literal... They're often also not literate, and that's what I want to solve here, is that we become very literate, and together we raise each other up because of that literacy. Yes? So Nancy, I think that's great perspective. So what Nancy said was that there was a priest once here who said, don't let the Bible get in the way of your religion. I'm going to make an assumption about what she's really meaning to say, which is, The Bible can very quickly make you legal. And if I were to say to you, the the simplest summary of Jesus' ministry was that the law does not save you. That's it. Pretty much everything else about Jesus' ministry can fall under that umbrella. It's also fair to say just love each other. I mean, that's pretty good, too. Um, but the law won't save you. Because in essence, what Jesus is saying over and over and over again is that the well-intended, fabulously detailed legal system that the Jewish people developed has more or less distracted them from the simplistic grace and love of God. That's it. And we want to make it so complicated because we like rules. We want to follow the rules. And there are so many people who really want to be told what to think, right? That's comforting. I think though that if you get too specific about rules and details, you're sort of missing the forest for the trees. And that grace and love can't be defined, they can't be uh, contained, they don't function the way we want because they're unfair and we hate that stuff right? We love fairness. And in almost every story of Jesus, it kind of comes down to, but that's not fair. And Jesus says, you're right. God's not fair. God is grace. And so the Bible, if you get to, if, if it becomes the lens through which you see God only, then I think it can sometimes get in the way but it's a partner, right? These are people, the Bible is a library, right, of lots of authors who wrote lots of books over hundreds of years. They're faithful people doing their best to understand what God's doing in the world. We can read what they thought was going on and it can help us understand what's going on now. That is perhaps the beauty of doing Luke and Acts in this Bible study, is Luke, more than any other author in the New Testament, understands that God works in time. There is, a, there is a theological term to define Luke in spirituality, which is salvation history. Right, Salvation history is how Luke understands God's working in the world. God worked in the world before Jesus, and God will work in the world after. That is a critically important idea for us to understand because the caveat, oh, um, it's crazy hair day in the preschool, so if you see some weird hair or wigs, that's what's going on. Many of our friends in other traditions, their starting place for understanding Christianity. Is that it is somehow defined and that it is, that the, the way of being Christian is a static experience. God may not be static, but the way Christianity define, is defined is static. Anglican theology is not that way. We, our starting place as Episcopalians, is that God is still doing stuff. Just as simple as that, that we might have understood something before, but God's still doing stuff and things can change. We can experience something new. We can experience a revelation of God in a new way. That actually means we change something about what we do. I mean, my, my personal favorite example would be, can women be leaders in the church? right? Why in the world not? Except that for a long time, people thought that women weren't supposed to be. But over time, thoughtfully and prayerfully, that has been debunked mostly. Um, Don't go to church where you don't have women in leadership. I can't handle that. I have no time for that. Um, So that's an example, though, of God is continually revealing new to us, right? God is not asleep or removed. God is dynamic and active, and those revelations matter. But the Bible is a canon, right? It has a it was started and it was stopped. There is a beginning and end, right? Revelation's it. Nothing else is in there. And so for thousands of years, nothing has changed about that canon but God is still revealing truth. And so the Bible should not be the only thing that we use to understand God. And we get that, right? We are sacramental Christians. That is the whole point of sacramentalism, is that when we experience a sacrament, we are experiencing God's presence right there. We're not doing something that's nice, right? It is not remembering something that happened It is actually having an experience with God right here and right now. We have the Bible and we have sacramental reality and we have just our own journey. But you've heard me say before, you shouldn't be Christian by yourself. None of us should do anything by ourselves, right? We're better together. And so in in a situation like this where we study the Bible, it is so much better to do it in a group to talk about it after this. I mean, my hope is that week in and week out, something kind of hits you as a surprise or a challenge. You know, I love it if you leave here and you're like, I don't really like that he said that. That's okay because I want you to talk about it. I want you to wrestle with it and I want you to bring back whatever you're wrestling with because someone else is going to have that same kind of question. And we can do this together. You know, I talk all the time about being messy. We can be messy here, it's okay. Although I have to more or less lecture because it's just too many people in the room, I don't really want it to only be that. It should be a conversation. And if we're going to stick together for a long time, which I hope, then we'll get to know each other. We'll get to know, oh, you know, oh, Nancy's going to ask a question about that, right? I mean, you're just going to know, like, (laughs) who's going to be the one who raises their hand when I said that thing, right? That's great. And it will make it a delightful experience. And we're better when we hang together with all of our diversity. All right. Any other last comments or questions? Before? Like okay. New Jerusalem Bible is another one you might check out. I don't know that one. So, I mean, I'm only going to read so many translations. You know. I mean, at some point, it's just, I got it. You know. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. That's a great thing to say. Just go play with Bible Gateway. It's an excellent resource because not only is it just transla- is it, is it translations, but it's also things like that name or that place or whatever that you don't know how to pronounce. If you are a reader in church or if you just want to read with your kids or grandkids or something like that, this will help you with pronunciation as well, which is super. They've got maps and all that good stuff. So it's a great, great resource. So let's jump into prepping for Luke. As I mentioned, Luke and Acts go together. Let me tell you why. There are four Gospels. Three of the Gospels are very deeply connected, and we call those Gospels synoptic. The synoptic Gospels are the first three in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why we think that they are so related is because there are portions of each of those gospels that are identical to one another, not kind of like it, not like they tell the same basic story. They are literal word for word for paragraphs, identical, not something that could happen because someone has a good memory of a story they heard somewhere. They had to be copying. So a theory came up years ago. This is an old theory that around, let's do a little quick history so we're all on the same page. Around 30, Jesus dies. Then around the other, well, we'll do this. In the 50s, we have the ministry of the apostles, right? Particularly Peter and Paul. Then when you get into the mid-60s, they're all dead. By the mid-60s, all of the big, big ones, James, Paul, Peter, the ones who wrote and traveled around, have died. It is when that happened that people thought, you know what, we should write this stuff down why that was such an interesting idea is because Jesus talks about a return that is imminent. So his disciples fanned out all over the place to tell the story of Jesus because he's coming now, any day. And after that first generation started dying off, their followers, the people who had become followers of Jesus because of the work done by those apostles, began to think, well, you know what, maybe Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow. Maybe eminent is more poetic, you know, and that it will be at some point. And the stories that had been mostly oral needed to be written. So there, the people who wrote the gospels are basically the second generation people from those who were actually walking and talking with Jesus. The first gospel was written around 70, and that was Mark. How do we know that Mark was written first? What is the most important thing to the Jewish identity, to the Jewish way of life? I love that you're saying things like God and the covenant, but. Okay, the law. And what epitomizes the law? The temple. The temple was everything. You had to make pilgrimages to the temple, right? You had to bring stuff and make gifts at the temple. And there was only one. We, don't, we didn't have temples like we have now. There was the capital T Temple. Now, it is, just for a little, little side note, the second temple. All right, first temple was built by Solomon. Solomon built the first temple. Then, during the exile, where Assyria and Babylon came down, took all of the Jewish leadership away, they destroyed that temple. It was rebuilt and then expanded upon over time until we get to the time of Jesus. And the temple that Jesus walked into was the second temple. It was gigantic and huge and ornate and beautiful. In 70, that temple was destroyed. Mark does not seem to have any idea that that temple was destroyed. For Mark, there is a very immediate sense that what Jesus is doing affects the Jews right now. There is no question about what do we do without the temple. We get that later. But in Mark, everything is as it was and he's telling the story of Jesus. In Mark, we get lots of language that is secrecy, right? Messianic secrecy is one of those phrases we use with Mark. Whenever you hear a story in church, and somebody like Peter says, hey, I know who you are, Jesus immediately says, don't tell anybody. That's Mark. There is this sense of urgency. Mark has over and over and over again, and immediately something happened. The word immediately comes in all the time in Mark. Mark has choppy sentences and is super short because they were not interested in poetry. This was to get the job done and to get people following Jesus. The end. Then we have two more that were sort of, well, I'm gonna go, people dispute this, so who knows. Sometime in the 80s or early 90s, we have Matthew and Luke written. Now, I told you that they are synoptic. This is what I mean. There are portions of Matthew and Luke that are identical to each other that also exist in Mark. There are portions of Matthew and Luke that are identical to each other that are not. So, most scholars think that there was another source of stories about Jesus that they call Q. That's a German word. It's not important. And they believe that Matthew and Luke both took from Mark and both took from Q, which is the only real way that Matthew and Luke could have identical passages that don't exist in Mark. It's also in Matthew and Luke the passages that are identical to each other but not in Mark are almost entirely quotes of Jesus. So many scholars believe that Q were sayings of Jesus, not really a story. And that they took the story of Mark and these quotes from Q and they told a better story. And they did tell a better story. Matthew is written specifically for Jews. Matthew's got lots of legal stuff. In Matthew, you get all the hearkening back to the Old Testament, all the connections being made to the prophecies of the Old Testament, because he knew that was critical for Jews. They wanted everyone to understand. Remember, they're not looking to start something new. They want people to believe that Jesus is the Messiah they've been expecting. And so it's important for Jews to have the bridge connected, right? Isaiah said this, and this is what Jesus did. Elijah said this, and this is what Jesus did. That's Matthew. Those explicit connections all the way back. So that the Jews would read this and go, oh my gosh, he is the Messiah. Luke was less concerned about the Jews and much more concerned about the non-Jews, or what we call Gentiles. And Gentiles, just in case you've never heard that, is non-Jew, is everyone else. Luke is very concerned that the Gentiles also receive this good news that Jesus brought about God. Linguistic studies have shown that the same author of Luke wrote Acts. In essence, it's part one and part two of one big story. If you want to get super technical, it's really that Luke is part one and two, and Acts is part three. Part one being the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah in the world. Part two, Jesus' earthly ministry. Part three is the apostolic age, when the apostles take over, which is not just then, It's now as well. It's us. You see we're missing one. So sometime, 90 plus, some people date it as late as 110 or 120, we get John. John is the gospel most Christians really like because John is working on what we call Christology the understanding of Christ. John has an understanding of Jesus as not Jesus of Nazareth, right? You get a lot of Jesus of Nazareth talk in Mark and Matthew and Luke. John's where we get a lot of Christ talk. John has begun, he has lived through at least one, if not two generations of followers who are trying to figure out what Jesus is really doing. Who Jesus really was? Is Jesus just a really great rabbi? He's got to be more than that. Because if we're telling the story about how he was crucified and then resurrected, then what is that, right? And so there develops this idea of the Christ that we are so familiar with. It It also, John, develops this idea of what Christ means to us as disciples. It's not just the Jewish Messiah. It's something else too. Now, John doesn't do anything more than that. The something else too takes a couple hundred years to start to nail down. But John at least has that sense that Jesus was not just a good guy. Jesus was the Son of God. What does that really mean, Son of God? Those I am. Sayings. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. All that stuff comes from John. Also, I am what? The way and the truth and the life, right? That comes from John. So, although there are some great stories, parables that we love out of these other gospels, if you really want to talk about doctrinal stuff, right? That orthodoxy of what it means to be Christian that most of us could spit pretty quickly. That's really coming from John. There is no textual relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. Very different. Which brings me to one of my favorite books. This is a gospel parallel. If this is interesting to you beyond just knowing it, this is a really neat book to get. Because what happens in this book is you've got the synoptics, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are put side by side in three columns. So as it goes through the story, you can see where they are exactly the same or where they are very different. One of the places they're really different is at the beginning. How many Gospels talk about the birth of Jesus? Tricky. <laughs> tricky, tricky. <laughs> Two. Matthew and Luke are the only ones that talk about the birth of Jesus. Name some of the characters that are in both stories, Matthew and Luke. <laughs> I said, yes, Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Good job. Okay. <laughs> Shepherds are only in one. The kings are only in one. Herod is only, well, Herod's in, well, not in only one infancy narrative, but in both Gospels. So just a quick little, it's interesting if you wanted to go compare these two, because what we have received, right, in our Christmas pageants or in our creche scenes or whatever, is really an amalgamation of the two. And it's lovely. There's nothing wrong with that. But... Jesus goes to Egypt in one of them, not in the other one. So did Jesus go to Egypt? I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, It's one of those interesting things about studying the Bible that can begin to open us up to some of these very hard truths we think exist, but there's a lot more nuance to them than we might believe. All right. We talked about salvation history. For Luke and Acts, we don't know who wrote them. Luke, that character, is a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys later on in Paul's letters. Well, I shouldn't say later on. I say later on because they come after the Gospels in the Bible, but remember, Paul's letters are being written here. So even though the Gospels are first in the New Testament, just page-wise in our Bibles, they were some of the last books to be written in the New Testament. All those letters, James, Peter, Paul, and the others, come before, chronologically, the Gospels were written. Luke is a companion of Paul. It is most likely that somebody wrote this book and used Luke's name because people knew Luke was one of Paul's companions and they would more likely read a book that that person wrote than a book that this person wrote. So it's, you know, we have this all throughout history where people will use someone's more famous name to kind of get people to read it. That is probably what happened. It is, however, very true that the author was highly educated and that education produced a really excellent quality Greek language. And we're going to see that in both Luke and Acts over these next two years. Any questions about that before we close? Yeah, Can we Luke in quotes? No, no. Some of the stuff that I tell you, so Haley just asked if we like put Luke in quotes as the author. No, um, just go with it. It's, it's fine, right? It doesn't hurt anybody. Um, Luke is the author. Well, it's sort of like Paul. If I were to say to you, how many letters did Paul write? Traditionally, Paul wrote 14. It is most likely Paul only wrote seven of those letters, and that someone else wrote the other seven, but used his name because he was more popular. Now, it's very, very likely that it was one of Paul's students who wrote those letters, right? So it was really the spirit of Paul. There's nothing deceptive about this, right? It's just a bit, to try and raise us up so that we can look a bit more critically at what the Bible is doing. Because I think that we can discover so much more for us as people of faith if we really dig into this intellectually than if we simply take kind of the shorthand that the tradition has offered people, right? And this is not, again, it's not meant to be deceptive, but if you think about the history of people or of Christians, for most of Christian history, people in general couldn't read. And so there was no way that people could read this for themselves. And so who was going to tell them what it said? Church leaders. And so church leaders looking out at a sea of basically uneducated, illiterate people, tried to summarize stuff, right? Tried to distill it a little bit, make it a little simple, make it easy enough for people to grasp and understand in order to help change their life. Well, fast forward to a much more well-educated, more well-informed, sometimes too informed, and certainly literate culture like ours. And a lot of what was done out of necessity has persisted. If we were to receive it, if the Bible had been received in a highly educated literate culture like ourselves, a lot of what became tradition probably wouldn't have happened because people would have been able to entertain the complexity and the nuance of the differences of each of those stories. It's just not what we received after hundreds and hundreds of years of illiteracy. And so it's incumbent upon us, I think, to not settle for what was meant to be a real dumbed-down version of the story, and instead spend some energy really getting into what it is, and to, ex- to not only accept, but kind of welcome a critical eye on how things were written, how it came to be, because context matters in a huge way. You know, I I was with a group this summer looking at Paul's letters, and we are all friends with people in traditions where Paul's letters have defined ideas about what it means to be Christian. It does not mean that Paul did not write those things. But if you take Paul's writings out of context, it's unfair to Paul. Paul was working with a group of people in a certain city In a certain period of time, who were wrestling with certain questions, and he was writing a letter to them, trying to help them through their questions in that moment. If we think that Paul wrote those letters to be grand statements of faith for everyone in every situation, we are wrong. That is wrong. Paul did not intend that. He was trying to talk to his friends at a certain church in a certain place of time. And that is just a little microcosmic example of what helps us read the Bible better. And when we read the Bible better, we're going to understand God better. And isn't that really the point? I thank you for this first day. I will hope to see you all back here next week.